We all started, all the band started off doing covers. When we were in uh, Hamburg and in the cavern in Liverpool, it was pretty much all covers. So I would do Long Tall Sally by Little Richard. But so did one of the other groups. There's a group called Derry and the Seniors. And, and Derry, he could do, well, tell him, Mary. He could do that, you know. And so it was like, well, I'll do it better. Yeah. Because if you were backstage and you were going to be on after them, yeah. and you suddenly heard, gonna tell him, Mary. You go, mm. you know, I was going to do that. Yeah. And you actually didn't have time to change. So you would do that. You'd go on and just hope your version was better. I remember we used to do a three, four thing. If you gotta make a fool of somebody, chicka chicka If you gotta make a fool of someone. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and remember, this is Wide Screen Podcasting. This is Wide Screen Podcasting. As always, thank you all for downloading. I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Yes, everyone, we are going to be, once again, exploring the beautiful yet potentially hostile world of Paul McCartney covers, as in artists covering Paul McCartney and not cover versions performed by Paul McCartney. As we all know, Paul writes killer songs, creates killer vocal melodies and has a killer voice, and so therefore his songs are an extremely high-value commodity to artists looking to put their own spin on iconic music, fun music, and music that will allow them to show off their musicality. Additionally, a bunch of these songs are hits, which gives them even more marquee value, meaning that he will also get his fair share of cynical cash-grab covers to help line his pockets and others. This is another segment of the show that I genuinely adore, because not only do I get to revisit a bunch of songs that I otherwise would struggle to find reasons to talk about again, but you know we get to do it in such a way whereby... We get to cover a wide range of new artists and genres, and it's as close as we come to discovering new music, I guess. Last time on this series, we were lucky enough to be joined by a lovely guest, who I shan't name in this episode, but feel free to look back through our back catalogue and find out who it was. But he was another podcaster, from another podcast, and we had a lot of fun doing that episode, and so naturally, like most of my successful collaborations, I thought it would be fun to reunite to continue that magic. And we did! And to my memory, it was largely successful, with fun being had by both parties, just like before. Although this is where the story derails somewhat and goes down a different path. As this second collaboration, the duties of editing fell to my collaborator, who said he would be doing it to help me out with my own strenuous workload. Now, that episode was recorded coming up to about six months ago now, and still nothing has materialised. Very upsetting. Uh, And so I find myself returning to this material all alone, ready to do it right this time around, shall we say. I always knew I was going to be returning to this episode, though I didn't instinctively know when I was going to do it. And the last episode that we put out was released almost a year ago now, and I have several episodes that I'm currently 
in the process of writing with none being ready to record and so I thought hey why not relax a little and dust this off expand it a little and just do a proper solo episode of Paul or Nothing. But before we can get into this episode there is the little matter of the housekeeping. So what do we have in terms of news for today everyone? Well, the thing that's on everyone's lip, the thing that everyone else is talking about at the moment, is the Beatles Get Back, the rooftop concert. Yes, this is a one-hour film that is basically made up of the footage in Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back series on Disney+, and it's being truncated into an hour-long film, and it is coming to IMAX cinemas near you, at least if you're living in the US. Uh, the, the IMAX cinemas are not near me here in the UK. Um, they've only announced one date so far, but yeah, if you live near an IMAX cinema and you love the Beatles, then I guess you'll probably be checking this out. Uh, the sound and the visuals have been updated and revamped even further to fit in with the IMAX experience, and so I imagine it's going to be a bloody good time. Um, interested to hear what people have to say about this one. I probably won't be experiencing it myself, sadly, but hey, them's the breaks. Now, the actual announcement that was at the bottom of the article that first announced this rooftop concert thing is the confirmation of the release of The Beatles Get Back on Blu-ray on January 8th this year. So, only about a month to go, folks. Looking forward to that. And... Yeah, Peter Jackson has finally been able to put out a home release for this iconic series. And yeah, I know lots of you out there, especially those of you who didn't get Disney Plus accounts, will be happy that this will be made available. However, it does come with some rather disappointing news also. As advertised, it's a three-disc box set with some nice art cards, yada 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 but it's just the eight hours that we've already seen before. And I know there were rumours of like an extra six hours, an extra eight hours, an extra 12 hours of bonus footage that Jackson had been working on. But from what I've been told, apparently Jackson had been told by Disney that there just is no market for bonus content for home release anymore. Apparently that's just not something that people do anymore, despite the fact that Peter Jackson basically pioneered what it means to, to, to have incredible home release bonus content, whether it's with the Lord of the Rings films, the King Kong or the Hobbit films, you know, I watched those bonus content features more than I watched those films. And despite the fact that there's like 50 hours or so of footage around these sessions, Disney's just saying no, I guess, which is, oh, that's so shit. Um, there's not even a, a copy of the original Let It Be movie there either, which I know a lot of people wanted as well, so there's still no home release for that film either. Yeah, that one's really bummed me out, really. But in turn, apparently, Jackson kind of feels the way we do. You know, he's, a, he's an uber fan in his own right, and that's why when the Get Back series came out, um, you know, we were expecting it to be about six hours long, then it turned out to be about eight hours long, and that was because Jackson had snuck in an extra two hours of the best footage from that bonus material into the project before Disney knew. 
I guess as a way to kind of meet us in the middle ground, but come on. If there's this bonus content there, at least release it on Disney Plus, you know? Anyway, I don't get too bogged down in this rant, but yeah, uh, it's definitely been on my mind of late. But we've definitely spent far too much of the recent history of this podcast talking about Get Back, so let's press on now. That is the end of the news. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always love reading out your correspondence here on the show, whether it's a McCartney story, whether you're talking about something on the show or something out there in the Beatle world. We've got a quick email today from one of our regular correspondents, Guy Jenkinson. He writes, Hi Sam, I'm enjoying your stuff as always, and I'm glad we share a love for Moll of Kintyre. I just wanted to add a couple of points. Oh no, this is one of the corrections emails. Point one, Girls' School was not the B-side to Mulligan Tire, it was a double A-side. Alright, you've, you've got me there, guy. Technically, yes, it was a double A-side. Right, fair dues. And number two, I believe Jimmy McCullough and Joe English did play on it from the recording dates on the Paul McCartney Project site and Luca Perazzi's book. Keep up the good work and Happy New Year. All the best, Guy. As always, thank you, dude, for giving me content to read out during this segment. It's always appreciated. Um, But yeah, thank you for filling in that little gap of knowledge. Jimmy McCullough and Joe English apparently do play on Girls' School. Um, I'm glad they do, because, you know, it's a really good track. (laughs) And I hope they'd want to be a part of that. Though, it really is a shame that, you know... Steve and Lawrence never got to play it, say, on the live UK tour in 79. That could have been quite interesting as well. But yeah, anyway, folks, if you want to be like Guy, if you want to have your correspondence read out here on the show, whether it's something short like that or something a little more substantial, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartneypod for daily updates. For bonus written Paul or Nothing content, check out our blog at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com Follow us on the socials, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is the place where you can watch new episodes of Mack It In Your Attic, our sister show. And the latest episode of Mack It In Your Attic, I am joined by Ed Crawford, a.k.a. Mr. Broadstreet himself, where... As you may have guessed, we go through an awful lot of give my regards to Broad Street content, but yeah, as you can tell by the episode length, I had a fantastic time talking with Ed. He is a fab guy in his own right. He has his own YouTube channel. There'll be links down below in this episode description as well as the one on YouTube. And if I may appeal to you folks just for a quick second, um, Mack It In Your Attic does not get nearly the same number of views as each episode of Paul or Nothing, and I'd argue that the content is just as good. So if you do enjoy the show, if you like what I do here, please just go and check it out on YouTube. Give us a few views, maybe a few subscriptions here and there. I mean, <laughs> I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. It's a great you know, side project to the show that's a little less structured and, you know, it just allows me to kind of do my fun, chatty, digressional thing, which I know so many of you love anyway. So don't make me beg, folks. Go and check out Mack It In Your Attic on our YouTube page. And if you want to give back in a different way, right away, in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, maybe leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on or watching on. 
give us a like, a thumbs up, a review, a couple of stars, maybe even a nice comment here or there. It is always appreciated. And finally, folks, if you want to help directly, if you want to help see the show grow, if you want to help get us new equipment, new product to review, or maybe you just really enjoy the work I do here, and you want to throw a couple of dollars at my face down the internet every month, if so, please consider joining our Patreon family. Patreon is a platform, of course, by which you can support independent content creators such as myself, but you do get your money's worth. You get two days early access to episodes of Paul or Nothing, you get instant access to all episodes of Mac It In Your Attic, instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed, so all of the interviews that I do are recorded on Zoom, they go straight up on the feed, and you can you know, base, basically watch episodes weeks or even months in advance. You get to access to bonus and lost episodes of the show that are never be released on this stream, as well as all of the scripts that I use for the podcast as well. It's certainly worth considering, you know. <laughs> of course I'd say that. But I want to give a huge shout-out to our new patron this month, Jack. Simply just Jack. And I want to also thank Katrina S. for upping her patronage as well. It is both appreciated from you too. You know, it always touches my heart when you all consider giving any kind of cold, hard cash to this show. And we cannot carry on, folks, without giving a shout-out to our entire Patreon family, including new patron Jack, Mr. D. Dubs, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Roderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Richard Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Ooh, there we are, folks. Now that all of that is out of the way, it is time for us to open the covers, get under the covers, cover the covers, all the puns you can think of. Let's crack on with an episode of Paul McCartney Covers. Starting us off, we have a cover of Man We Was Lonely by Davy Jones. And as I only just learned in this research for the episode, uh, we're talking about the member of the Monkees and not the squid captain from the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. track for Jones's 1999 compilation album Just For The Record Volume 2 and since I cannot find any other release that includes this I have to assume that it was his own version of a cold cut and had simply remained on the shelf till 99. So this is an interesting type of cover as it essentially turns what is a rather obscure album track that sounds entirely McCartney-esque into a rather generic early 70s pop tune that also 
somehow has the feel of an early 60s pop tune. Like, stay within your, your wheelhouse there, Davey. Whilst I did kind of enjoy it for what it was worth, it was a very surface-level enjoyment for a very surface-level cover of a song that makes up for what it loses in any kind of atmosphere or deeper meaning in jaunty rhythm and fun little musical flourishes. Like, where the original song might start sounding a little repetitive, since it's not McCartney singing and playing, Jones has to, or is forced to, spice it up to keep you interested in the same way. In the second verse, there's a really cool piano line that's introduced, briefly, uh, that I kind of wish they'd played around with a little more. And then there's also, like, kind of Hawaiian staccato guitar thrown in there for the final verse, again, which I did enjoy, but it's all in surface of rather shallow machinations. Immediately, though, in spite of how fun the song can be, the loss of those quintessential uh, homemade production techniques and those heavenly ramshackle Paul and Linda vocals means you just lose so much of that integral magic, and it's hard to think of the song any other way. Like, it's just too polished and clearly recorded in a proper studio and lacks the original's rough-around-the-edges charm. One thing I will say, though, they did take the time to get those bomb, 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 bomb bass notes at the end of each break right, because, you know, they still hit the right way in the way they should. Essentially, I can only see this cover as an exercise in turning a slower, much more introspective McCartney song into a rather soulless, fast-paced pop tune. I can appreciate its efforts, as there is a certain joy in hearing such a rarely heard Macca tune being covered at all, but the results do not leave you wondering as to why this song remained a demo and not a fully released track, even after all of the production work put into it. In second place, we have another song from Macca's debut album, and by an artist that I've actually heard of and respect. This is Junk by John Denver. Motorcars, handlebars, bicycles for two, broken-hearted jubilee. Parachutes, army boots, sleeping bags for two, sentimental jamboree. Sign in the shop window Why, why says the junk in the yard The first thing that came to my mind with this cover was when Denny Lane name-checked John Denver himself during the performance of Richard Corey from the Wings Over America album, and the fact that McCartney himself had already been covered by Denver makes it even cooler, because you know Paul would have told Denny about that. The cover itself featured on Denver's fourth studio album, Poems, Prayers and Promises, which also featured his own version of Let It Be, which leads me to believe that he is quite the McCartney fan indeed. Go over and check out that cover as well. Honestly, everyone, this one was an absolute joy to listen to, and I'm very grateful for having come across it, because this is exactly what you or I should ever want or expect from a John Denver cover of Junk. Like, 
I don't want to make it sound by the numbers or anything more than this is just a completely logical, sensible pairing and it just makes sense for this kind of cover. He is a wonderful guitar player with a distinctive, hauntingly emotional voice and they're a perfect match for this song as they are brought to bear with full force. Denver does a dutifully faithful cover here, both in terms of his vocal performance as well as his guitar playing, with the only real differences being the fact that it's him doing the song. It's remarkable just how emotive Denver's delivery is here. Like, there is something intrinsically nostalgic and out of time about his pitch-perfect voice that sells this material so well. I also love the way his actual voice is mixed in, like it really sounds like he's singing to us from an utterly deep, dark void. Because when he stops singing, and when the song finishes, you really do feel alone in the silence, and it's so fucking like effective and emotional and wrought. I guess... If I had to pick an actual deviation from the original, though, is just how professional and patient the song is as a recording. This isn't a quaint home recording with a crackle. This is purposefully effective and a well-produced track that allows Denver to purposefully capture the tragedy and the heartbreak of the song and give it a new lease of life. It's the complete opposite to the Davy Jones track, where the increase in production value actually goes to serve the song and improve it rather than detract. At first glance, it would seem that a cover as homogenous as this one would feel rather pointless in the scheme of things, but what I like about this is just how Denver basically identifies what made the original work, in what ways to stick to the formula and what ways to do it better. Am I saying that it's better than Paul's? Probably not, not really, but it's pretty fucking close, and it's easily one of the best covers we're going to be looking at here today. Here today. Pressing on to something a little more light-hearted now, with a cover of a song that I've never really had a fondness for, but I'm always willing to give another chance, this is My Love by the great Tony Bennett. This is not one of Bennett's pre-retirement duets with Lady Gaga, and instead, this was a single that he released in 1973. I can't promise that the version you just heard there is the same as the actual single, but it's pretty difficult to find, especially with the resources I've got. But anyway, said single was recorded on June 19th, 1973, and was released that year on the album Tony Bennett's Greatest Hits, Volume 7. Yeah, he's already got seven volumes out by 73. This guy, yeah, he really was putting out the material. Okay, so we've had quite a few of these tracks in this series where you get 
one of the all-time great vocalists to come in just to annoy John Lennon with how they are yet again covering McCartney's songs, especially songs that anyone else has already covered. This time it's Tony Bennett, and i got to say, I was looking forward to what he was going to do with the material, but fuck me, did I find this dull. Like, normally when I'm writing my notes and I need to listen to a song a couple of times through, that really wasn't the case here. After one listen, I was like, I'm done. And as I alluded to earlier, I make no secret of the fact that I'm not a fan of my love. And whilst I was looking forward to it, I did keep my expectations low, especially from this kind of genre, and it didn't disappoint. And it was the exact kind of schmaltzy, over-the-top, been there, done that kind of track that I was not hoping for. I was really gunning for Bennett to kind of just deliver this incredible vocal here and not croon it up too much and sadly that's what happened furthermore I don't even think that this song is that difficult to translate from one artist to another by any means and I do mean that in a complimentary way but the song just sounds off here firstly there's really no melody that the band is jiving off and you can just tell that they're kind of begging for something with a little more meat to to make it a little catchier and a little more memorable but like so many McCartney songs the real draw is the vocal performance and the key weakness here is Bennett's delivery and the way he interacts with the original vocal performance and the lyrics like the way Paul sings it the whole thing has a lot of high points and low points but since Bennett's in a big amphitheater with a big old tiny brass band and he's got a Talk to the people at the back! He's almost just always at a high or loud moment. And it kind of saps what little about the song I actually like to begin with. Like, there's no emotional resonance, is it? You know, it's just, my love! And it's like, oh, God, Tony, chill out, mate. I honestly don't think he understood the material all that much or even cared, to be honest. He does a million of these covers and this was just another one. And... Coupled with such a stilted performance, you can't help but feel that this was one of the most painfully obligatory by-the-number Macca covers ever released. So, anyway, from one easy listening titan to another, we now move on to the work of Bert Kampfert and his orchestra with a rendition of Oh Woman, Oh Why. somewhere before and it turns out he was actually the man who hired the Beatles to play as the backing group on Tony Sheridan's My Bonnie and here we now have him covering a solo Paul track a decade later 
funny how things work out. And ironically, in the time since I recorded this episode, uh, I, I did sadly lose my grandfather, uh, my mother's dad, and his version of James Last's swinging safari, you know, was used as the closing song for his funeral. So, yeah, again, funny how things work out. In the description for this song on YouTube, it's described as a left turn for Campfoot, who also covered several other rock songs on the album which this featured. So, I am guessing he was mostly well known in the realm of easy listening covers that we've been constantly flirting with during the series. The album itself is called Burt Comfort Now, and with a title like that, you can only assume that this is an aging artist trying to stay relevant. Comfort also went on to do his own cover of Love Is Strange, not necessarily a McCartney track, but there is a link there on the album he did the next year. And I'm guessing the fact that he covered this song means he must have bought and listened to Another Day, as this track was only available as a B-side for that album. Maybe it got some radio play, I'm not too sure. Once more, folks, we have what can only be described as an extremely innocuous cover of McCartney material. And since Paul himself did several instrumental B-sides of his own singles, it's, it's hard to get too worked up over this one. It's just, oh woman, oh why, done by an orchestra without any of the grit or raw emotional energy. So... If you wanted the song to be completely castrated and sanitised, then I guess you will enjoy this one. Really though, outside of the fact that my boy Paul got paid for this drivel, the only thing that I did enjoy about this song was how much it validates the point about McCartney's voice really being a powerhouse instrument in its own right. Like yeah, most instrumentals will turn a vocal line and melody into a new instrumental section, but here it is somehow lacking. <laughs> we all remember, know and love Paul's titanic delivery in Oh Woman Oh Why, and here the power has been transposed over to an entire brass section and it still doesn't match up. That's how big our Paulie can sing. Though it does make you wonder why he chose this song at all, because it's really not an easy listening track by any means, and he probably would have found much more success if he had just done Another Day instead. Of course, though, with this song being from the Ram Sessions, though not featured on the album, one cannot help but automatically, subconsciously just assume that this is from the Thrillington album by Percy Thrill's Thrillington. And yes, this is probably the reason why I do, in a guilty pleasure sort of way, kind of enjoy this song as much as I do. I mean, you totally could imagine this playing amongst the Thrillington playlist, and it would totally feel at home. I mean, it would be the worst song on said playlist, but it certainly wouldn't stick out too much. Yeah, it's it's an easy listening orchestral instrumental cover of a McCartney song. We have been there, we have done that, let's press on. And next up, we have one of the most enjoyable songs for me to research for this episode. This is Silly Love Songs, as performed by Sonny and Cher, and co.
started this series over a year ago, I knew that I was eventually going to get to share. I don't know how, I don't know why, I just knew. Though it's still crazy that the singer who did this went on to do... Do you believe in love out of love? <laughs> Though what's most interesting is that they didn't just attempt this song once, with there being two versions of this song available on YouTube, and both of them are certainly something to behold. Now, like another song we're going to be going to do later in this episode, these performances are excellent representations of 1970s American television. And if you haven't worked it out already, that means they come from The Sonny and Cher Show. The first that you just heard is just from the titular Sonny and Cher themselves, with the second being a foursome where they are joined by two other 70s staples, Donnie and Marie. And let's hear a quick snippet of that too right now. In both versions, the standout performer is Cher herself, with her truly being one of those artists I just won't stand for people bashing. She is iconic and a hell of a singer, and throughout these two tracks, rather like the bassline from the original version, you're basically just listening out for Cher. And you really do have to focus on her, because both arrangements have that classic slapdash, home recording doesn't yet exist, so that'll do, kind of polish and approach to it. These were just meant to be watched once and only once, and you really can tell. Also, for those of you who have or never will watch the footage on YouTube, there is no backing band, it's all a pre-recorded backing track, and so A, there isn't much to analyse, and B, yes, it literally is just two and or four people awkwardly stood there singing in front of a live audience. The two interpretations of the intricate, interwoven harmony sections were interesting, to say the least. Like, yeah, this is live and live TV at that, but the one with just Sonny and Cher is this hilariously stilted back-and-forth diatribe, because, yeah, it is just the two of them. It's hard to replicate about six vocals. However, once they do the four-person version with Donnie and Marie, in all fairness, they actually fucking pull it off with a near-perfect replication of the original. Hey, second time's the charm, right? Also, being television from the 1970s, it's very hard not to be drawn to either of the terribly mismatched outfits in the version with just Sully and Cher, or the matching red turtleneck jumpers with their initials on it, as seen on the version with Sonny, Cher, Donnie and Marie. 
Another dead giveaway that this is the 1970s, though, is that, well, it's the fact that Sonny is not just kept off camera as a songwriter or producer, because, yeah, no man with that face would be allowed on modern-day television. In all seriousness, though, yeah, this is more of a time capsule kind of performance for me. They are fun relics of a bygone era, and they are certainly very telling of the style at the time. It was the style at the time! And whilst I won't be listening to them in any sort of seriousness, they are a hell of a lot of fun. On to the next song now, and this is another song that I've been overjoyed to have stumbled across during this side series. This is Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey by Freddie Hubbard. Freddie Hubbard or Hubbard or Hubbard before this episode, but it turns out he was quite the renowned jazz trumpeteer. 
with this particular cover coming from his 1971 album First Light, which also features as players Herbie Hancock and George Benson, who more than likely appear on this track also, which is insane. But yeah, it's crazy to see how many people are clamouring to cover Paul during this supposedly unsuccessful pre-band on the run phase of his career. It's clear that at least his peers were still rather impressed with him. Yeah, when it comes to instrumentals in this size series, one can tend to just assume that the end result is going to be something quite lightweight and in the background, and, and by the numbers, but instead Hubbard delivers something far more atmospheric and impressionistic and most importantly ambitious. Rather than easy listening, you get a phantasmagoria of sounds here, with some musical swells reaching the intensity of something like A Day in the Life. Like, I really enjoyed how Hubbard took something so quintessentially British and silly and turned it into something that at times gets incredibly dark and tense, but does so without betraying the original and makes it still sound like you are listening to Uncle Albert, maybe just Uncle Albert's a little drunk and rambly at the moment. Also, rather than just being a trumpet song, which one might expect from a trumpet player, he also allows for lengthy segments of guitar and keyboard, which were done incredibly well, probably because they were done by Herbie Hancock and George Benson. But yeah, there's also a lot of room to add flourishes like that, with the song going from a healthy 4 minutes 53 seconds to a whopping 8 minutes 21. With all that extra time, Hubbard adds all of these jazzy digressions and does not stick to the template at all, and really does his own thing. I mean, this is jazz after all, and so I was pleasantly surprised by how unrecognisable a large portion of the song is. So when the song does return to a more familiar section, it makes it all the more thrilling. Like, this is a classic example of an artist expanding upon the track rather than just replicating it, and the results, well, as you heard, they really speak for themselves. If anything, whilst Thrillington would probably be the first thing that comes to mind with this track, a bit like Burt Camphor, this is far more wider-reaching and experimental, to the point where it almost feels like a three-imagined version of Uncle Albert slash Admiral Halsey, and is a window into what a reimagined version of Ram might sound like if we should be so lucky. He basically creates his own samples of sections and repeats them to a real hypnotic effect, though it's not done digitally, he just plays these things over and over again, so the musicianship is just mwah. Like, I was also genuinely surprised by how groovy and danceable this song was for something so serious and, you know, for something that, that shifts pace so regularly, but when you have all these great players on a song like this, you're just going to get something groovy. I've got to say, folks, very impressed by this one, to the point whereby I've actually been listening to it regularly between the first time I recorded this episode and now rather than simply returning to it to jog my memory, like with most of the tracks. Yeah, this is just a runaway success. I highly recommend you pause this podcast and go listen to the full thing in full. Following on from a very intense track now, we're going to dial it back a bit with a touch of Claudine Longay's version of Every Night.
covers episode if you didn't discuss a cover of Every Night, which seems to be a much more popular song contemporaneously than we may ever appreciate, because loads of people cover this one, and quickly, I might add. Why is that, I hear you ask? Well, it's because it's the true best song from the McCartney album slash McCartney 1, not Maybe I'm Amazed. Now, as seemingly uncommon as this is, this cover is one of my favourite sub-genres of easy listening style music, which is the kind of song that is apparently sung by a whispering French bell maid in full regalia. And no, I can't think of many household name examples off the top of my head, but if any of you have seen any movie, especially a European one from the past 50 years, you've probably heard this kind of shtick before. Anyway, the point is that this is a super obscure style of music that, for me, is almost instantly enjoyable purely for how niche and absurd and ridiculous it is. But what's interesting here, though, is the actual pairing of this frankly odd musical style with Paul's Every Night. And there really is a certain dissonance with this song, because as fun as it sounds, the end result as ridiculous as this sounds, is a little too high concept, as it doesn't quite stick the landing. It's definitely too ambitious, <laughs> which is ironic seeing as how I seem to like the more ambitious tracks in this series. I honestly find it hard to imagine the brainstorming session that cooked up this idea. Like, let's do a sexy Inspector Clouseau kind of version of Every Night. And rather like several songs in today's episode, this just ends up crossing the line into silliness and novelty. Proper novelty, as in I'm laughing at it, not with it. Not to say that it's done particularly badly, I guess it kind of achieves exactly what it's set out to do, it's just that that objective is a little baffling to me. I guess the best thing you could say about this fun little curiosity is that it serves to prove how far-reaching Paul's influence is on wider music, for better or worse. Like, I'm so glad that this song exists. I do. But the end result for me is a delightful little mashup of styles and tastes that I really cannot bring myself to say anything too serious about. It is what it is, and what it is is a tiny French-made whisper version of Every Night. Again, if that's your shtick, then I guess you're going to love this one. But if it is, you might want to take a long, hard look at yourself. Next on this list, we have another song we've covered here before on this series, which is actually one of mine and Luca Perazzi's all-time favourites, as I'm sure with many of you out there. This is Monk Berry Moon Delight by Exuma. Catch up! 
Right, so for the uninitiated, such as myself, and I imagine most of you listening right now, Exuma is an artist who is touted on Wikipedia as an artist with, and I quote, an unclassifiable music style, a strong mixture of carnival, junkanoo, calypso, reggae, African music, and folk music. This particular cover was from his fourth album, Reincarnation, from 1972, his second album from that year. As you heard there, the song itself launches right into it, which I thought was quite jarring, but there is an unexpected energy that comes from a move like that, and that momentum is kept up throughout the song, and i got to say, despite the fact that this is almost immediately a lesser version than the McCartney one, which is I still enjoyed this one a hell of a lot because again it's clear that the artist knew what the song was about thematically and spiritually and ran with it. I think everyone would agree with me when I say that the true standout element of this cover was the vocal performance. As one of the YouTube comments rightly points out, this is a difficult song to cover and Exuma makes it sound fucking effortless. His bellows and roars are just so exciting and pleasurable to listen to, and it's clear he is enjoying being able to show off here. You know, we've spoken about this numerous times now, but this is clearly another one of those cases where not only has Paul written a good song, but he's crafted something that is both fun for the artist to record, as well as giving them an opportunity to test their pipes, as it were. Though it is a shame that the same can't be said about the backing. Now, don't get me wrong, I do appreciate the arrangement here, I think it's particularly well done for what it is, especially that squelchy guitar sound, but I think the production and the recording is overall a little cheap and tinny and hollow, with all of it really betraying the talent on display with the musicians. Like, I really wish they had matched the might and majesty of the vocals, but sadly they somewhat fall short. Sticking true to form, this is yet another version of Monkberry Moon Delight, where the singer gets the lyrics ever so slightly wrong purposefully or accidentally, I don't know. But yeah, it happened with the Screaming Jay Hawkins version and now here. Do you think that maybe because the lyrics seem so nonsensical that artists don't think it matters all that much? Though, one that does make sense is that he changes the two references of piano to guitar, as I'm guessing that he is a guitar-based player, seeing as how on the front cover of the album he's holding a guitar. Overall, this is a very competent cover that respected and understood the source material very well, while still somewhat falling short of the lofty heights set by McCartney. But still, it put a unique spin on the material and makes it a worthwhile entry in this series. I liked it. I hope you like it. Go and check it out. Next up, we have a song that I had to get a free three-month subscription to Amazon Music just to be able to find a playable version of. This is Helen Merrill's Love In Song. Love 
Now, Helen Merrill is a name that goes all the way back to the 1950s, and at 91, she's still thankfully with us here today. She's no stranger to covers, though, as shown by her 1970 album, Helen Merrill Sings The Beatles. But this particular cover we are talking about today comes from her 1977 album, fittingly titled Love in Song. Now, I've got to say, it was totally worth getting a free three-month subscription to Amazon Music, because without hyperbole, I'm going to come right out swinging and call this easily one of the very best McCartney covers I've ever heard. Like, this is more of exactly what I am after when I'm looking out for a McCartney cover to save my thirst for new content. It's faithful to the original, but takes it in a completely different direction to create something unexpectedly magical, alluring, and classic in its own right. Yes, the Venus and Mars track is one of the most underrated Wings tunes of all time, which certainly helped my appreciation for this one, but what draws me so much is that it turns the melodrama of the original and turns it into a real palpable drama. It's incredibly different from the original and it's far more ambiguous and mysterious in its atmosphere and the mood it's trying to convey. And I also think that there's something just so intriguing about hearing this lyric come from the woman's perspective as well. I was also drawn to this because I always felt like the McCartney original was still a bit too, not uplifting, but like rousing, I guess. Whereas here, we get this spellbinding sort of melancholy, which is very modern, very cool, very subdued, and all over rather irresistible for me. Her vocal is also immediately enthralling and haunting because it contrasts against all of the other powerhouse female McCartney vocals we've had on this series, and instead it draws power from being so much more subtle. And that, for me, in turn, adds so much more emotional weight behind it. Now, folks, it was my co-host who originally suggested this song, so shout-outs to that nameless person. <laughs> and in the notes for this song, it was listed as jazz. And perhaps because of my own limited preconceived notions of what jazz actually is, I guess I kind of went in expecting to hear something that Woody Allen might be playing along to in a club on his seedy clarinet. But no, instead we get a very electronic, synth-based, artificial arrangement to this song that not only caught me off guard, but was also pretty darn faithful to some of the experimental synth sounds that McCartney was working on in the mid-70s, only amplified. What's even more interesting is that the entire band lineup and production is credited to Japanese artists, which certainly helps lend the song that otherworldly, ethereal feeling that it has. Like, I was definitely getting some Tomita vibes from this track. The down-the-rabbit-hole-like atmosphere that you get is instantly conjured. You do feel like you're falling the moment you hear those rolling keyboard synth lines for the first time. And I was just hooked from that point onwards, really. I was along for the ride. They happen a couple of times throughout, and they are just so instantly evocative. And, like, there's just an instant mystery behind them as well. Like, you're like, okay, where's this going? Also, the drumming and the bass in this one is also just, just killer. So, yeah, folks, this is easily one of the very best covers we have ever had on this show. 
I find it completely fascinating and all-consuming and it's just really, really good. Go and listen to it without me talking over the top of it if you haven't heard it in full already. That is an order. Following on, and we have another cover of a surprisingly popular McCartney song, considering how supposedly unpopular the Source album is. This is Tomorrow by The Fevers. damn popular in their home country as far as my research tells me despite the fact that an ignorant man such as myself has never heard of them on to the song itself and the moment I heard that it was a foreign language version of Sozinho or Tomorrow I was already consoled because as horrendously colonial as this sounds I do enjoy a foreign language song purely for the fact that I don't understand the lyrics now yeah part of that is a novelty but you also get to appreciate the melody and the vocalizations a little more intensely as you aren't listening to the words per se you're just listening to the musicality of it and look when i say novelty i don't mean it's purely something to be comical like it's it's inherently silly or anything like that i just mean it it makes me happy now did it all pan out with a wonderfully unique cover of a song not exactly for me, it was a pretty standard cover of Tomorrow, and it really just treads that ground between boring recreation and no deviations whatsoever. And so there really isn't much too much to comment on. This is also particularly noticeable in a song like Tomorrow, which at its core is a little samey and does rely on McCartney's vocals and the wind's harmonies to bring it to life. Like, I enjoy the concept of a non-English version of a song, but... Aside from changing the language, the vocals and the instrumentation and arrangement offer far too little for fans of the original, and I can mostly see this as appealing almost exclusively to Brazilians in 1972. Sadly folks, this is as boringly mediocre as we get on this show, neither really bad, neither really good. I mean, literally the fact that a Brazilian rock group covered poor at all is more interesting than the song itself. Again, truly highlighting how far-reaching Paul's influence truly is. I hate to call this song a gimmick track, but at the end of the day, that's what it is. Again, I'm not saying they did a bad job, but it's pretty dull when compared to the other more daring, inspired and plainly well-done covers we've looked at today. Right, our next song is another example of gloriously dated American TV show performances, as we tune into With a Little Look by Mary Tyler Moore on... 
not the Mary Tyler Moore show, but one of her latter variety shows simply titled Mary. With a little luck, we can help it out. We can make this whole darn thing work out. With a little luck, we can lay it down. Can't you feel the town exploding? There is no end to what we can do together. Together. I guess it makes sense that we would be discussing such another vivid time capsule of the 1970s. Though, being a Brit, I have no idea who Mary Tyler Moore actually is, but I know I have heard her name in the lyrics for Buddy Holly by Weezer. Like Sonny and Cher from earlier, the show that this song appeared on appears to be one of those classic garden variety entertainment shows that just doesn't exist anymore and it comes with all the trappings you'd expect like awfully cheap costumes, terrible rictus grin smiles, a lame pre-recorded backing track and a choreography that was clearly made up on the spot on the day and maybe rehearsed once. Though there are two notable members of the backing chorus that you cannot help but become fixated upon when you see them. First of all is a young Michael Keaton, yes Batman and Mr. Mom himself is singing here, and for those of you who haven't seen the video, he's the first male voice that sings together. And secondly, the greatest of all late night talk show hosts, David Letterman, is part of the deep toned duo that sings, We can bring it in for landing. I mean, <laughs> I know we've all got to start somewhere, but that's just an insane backing lineup, that is. That's, you know, that's like Eddie Hubbard earlier having Herbie Hancock and George Benson. Wow. <laughs> also, it's funny now to think that Paul McCartney, the supposedly boring, middle-of-the-road, uncontroversial Beatle, is still so controversial here, in the United States at least, that they have to edit the word damn out of the song and replace it with darn. <laughs> that's so darn funny. Now... I was hardly expecting this one to be the most daring interpretation of Macca's work on this episode, but I was interested in how they might approach such a slow-paced and introspective ballad, and the way they do it is, is pretty <laughs> spectacularly bad. 
uh, they kind of blindly force a square peg into a round hole, turning it into an upbeat, glazed-over pop tune, despite the fact that every facet of the song's construction works directly against that. I mean, the best way I could describe the arrangement of this cover is that it felt like, what if Captain America was in charge of the arrangement? And from this, it's clear that orchestrations are not one of his superpowers. Also, Mary Tyler Moore was not a professional vocalist, and while she's clearly a fantastic entertainer and can certainly sing in key far more successfully than I ever will be able to, I won't go as so far to say that she's much of an accomplished singer. You know, she's no Cher. And her shouty delivery has a certain, that'll do, let's move on to the next segment of the show kind of quality. Yeah, guys, this one is an utter failure of a cringe fest. Again, directly comparing it to Sonny and Cher, you know, their performances had a kitsch charm and an innocence to them, whereas this is just a mangled monstrosity of a composition. The arrangement is like nails down a chalkboard to me, and it turns one of my favourite songs in the McCartney songbook into something that makes me want to kill not just myself, but others also. Next up, we get to return to an artist we've already covered, and I can't wait to see how they do. This is Some People Never Know by We All Together. Ahí voy ya. Ya. Grabando. Un, dos, tres, cuatro. covers episode of Paul or Nothing, We All Together is a Peruvian rock band that specialises in all things Beatles, as we saw with their near-flawless interpretation of Tomorrow from Wildlife. All over it was pretty amazing and so my expectations were pretty high going into this track, especially with the fact that it's another Wildlife song, and one that I love as much as some people never know. Now, this was part of a single release with the B-side being the aforementioned cover of Tomorrow, and by golly, if there was ever a foreign vinyl single that I wanted to pick up for myself, it would be this one. Fortunately, my lofty expectations were, if anything, exceeded. As soon as the song begins, you are just overcome with the sense that these guys live and breathe this music. Because to call this recording album accurate is an insult to tracks that, that are album accurate. And just how faithful the song is, in a kind of spiritual sense. Like, sometimes when a track is so similar to the original, it kind of becomes pointless, but not here. 
if anything, you're just blown away by how well they capture the essence of the track. These guys are clearly Wings superfans, and their dedication to delivering the same kind of emotional resonance to their listeners is entirely commendable, and one cannot help but appreciate the fact that this is clearly not just some shameless cash grab cover. I mean, yeah, it does have some surface differences to let you know that it's not the original, and one word in the lyrics may have been lost in translation, but fuck me, do they ever just nail the core atmosphere of some people never know. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that this track is 100% trying to recreate the exact arrangement and instrumental performances. And, you know, it would be interesting to swap the backing and vocal tracks with the original to see how well it all fits. Something else that I found quite intriguing was how they managed to pile the song down from over six and a half minutes to being just under four and a half. There are several sections that they truncate and there are others that they drop entirely, especially the lengthy closer, and it actually creates a much more streamlined and to-the-point version of the song without losing any of the magic. Like the John Denver track from earlier, this song is basically an opportunity to recapture the essence of the song, do it note for note perfect, and then put it all through a slightly more refined production process. This is no mean feat, but we all together are Beatle pros, and I'm not shocked in the slightest by how fucking incredible this cover is. And as per the norm on the podcast here, folks, the songs that I generally tend to have the least to talk about are the ones that I like the most, as there are only so many ways you can say, I think this is really good. But I think this is really good, and... Thankfully, in the research for this episode, I found that they have done a cover of Band on the Run, and I can't wait to discuss that on the next episode. On to the next song now, and we have another unintentionally amusing selection in the form of Mrs. Vanderbilt by Los Mismos, or Mismos. So I'm starting to see a theme with a lot of today's selections, though this is a combination of two tropes, as this is a foreign language track that's also a piece of forgotten cheesy 1970s television. This time we have Los Mismos, or Mismos, a Mexican outfit that has long since disbanded, and now there's another band called Los Mismos, but I I digress. (laughs) Upon discovering that this was another foreign language song, I knew that this would lead to another case where the 
pathetic monolingual colonist such as myself would just be humming along aimlessly only to burt out Mrs. Vanderbilt and Ho Hey Ho every 30 seconds because, you know, names and guttural sounds always stay the same in every language. Um, But, you know, the same novelty is certainly here, only that we're going from Brazilian to Spanish. Musically, I wasn't all that impressed by this one. Most of the lovable parts from the original are there, but they're all a bit out of place or ever so slightly off, and the song is brought down by the compounding weight of all these little errors. I mean, it did prove just how funky that bass line is, even if it is being played in a way that isn't anything like the original track whatsoever, and the sax guy does have to really exert himself here to drag the rest of the band kicking and screaming out of a total failure of a composition, but I think we have an example here of a band approaching a song that might at first seem quite simple, finding out that it may be a little bit more complex than they thought, and ultimately not being able to recreate it properly, especially under the time constraints of television. Now, I know this isn't one of my music video review episodes or anything, but it's certainly hard to separate the songs from the accompanying visuals, especially when you consider all of the trippy imagery and hilariously overripe dance choreography and silly costumes on display. Right from the get-go, you can see that this song is either recorded for the children market and has an appropriate music video, or it was part of some sort of children's TV show. Either way, it's still pretty rubbish, though you know that McCartney would have been a fan of this kind of move, he loves creating content for children, and I guess that's probably why they thought, like, you know, what better than a goofy-as-fuck song like Mrs. Vanderbilt, you know, to give the kids something to dance to, and, you know, I could I could definitely see how the music would work for kids here, and you've got that, you know... Ho, hey, ho segment that you don't really need to understand the original language to appreciate. But the lyrics are a bit heady and a bit complex for kids, aren't they, Mrs. Mrs. Vanderbilt? I mean, are they truly going to understand the nuances of what Paul was really singing about here? I don't think so. But hey, it's still fun and kitsch in its own right, even if... You know, it's not going to be anything that I'm really going to go back and listen to outside of showing people on YouTube silly Paul McCartney clips. Pressing ever onwards now, everyone, and we have a track that might have me going against the grain here. This is Tomorrow by David Cassidy.
So yeah, this is the second version of Tomorrow that we're going to look at here today. And I always like to get at least one song on twice for these covers episodes, as it really highlights the different ways you can approach this music. This song comes from Cassidy's 1976 album, Home Is Where The Heart Is, which is proportionally quite late for a McCartney cover from this period. You know, they're normally from the same year. Now, one of the first things you can read on the Wikipedia page for the album itself reads as thus. The album is noted in particular for Cassidy's recording of Paul McCartney's song Tomorrow, which McCartney rated as taking the song to its ultimate potential. Now, I can't find any other quotes that back this claim up, but even if Paul did say it himself, it's still plainly wrong. Furthermore, so many of the top comments on YouTube videos of this song read something similar to, you know, like, oh, this is way better than the McCartney original, and at the risk of going against both Macca and David Cassidy fans here, I've just got to say again, no, it's not. I know I mentioned Tomorrow is a bit samey earlier. Well, this, this cover is a frank reminder that sometimes samey is way better than all over the fucking place. Like Davy Jones's Man We Were So Lonely at the start of the episode, this is an example of someone trying to add too much extraneous fluff and tat to a song to make it sound better and failing. I mean, I know why this album is called Home Is Where The Heart Is, because they put everything into it but the kitchen sink. You can tell that all those involved felt like they were expanding upon the song and polishing it off, you know, taking an admittedly quite sparse arrangement and mixing in textbook overproduction at its worst. Like, I was at points legitimately wondering whether Cassidy thought he was covering Uncle Albert or something. You know, something that actually has different movements and changes like that. And by the time you get to the final part of the song where the OTT electric guitar and gospel choir are brought in, you are just left wondering if there was any idea they thought was actually inappropriate and shouldn't use for this song. Oh, and don't even get me started on that cringe-worthy, syrupy, sweet, slow-ass breakdown about halfway through. I mean, my God, is that one of the worst things I've ever had to sit through on this show. It's truly the most needlessly over-exaggerated, drawn-out pieces of filler dross ever put to vinyl. And I know that I always talk about how songs need to be a bit more ambitious in terms of covers, but this is over-ambition in the complete wrong direction. I really think they should have reined this back in. And what's worse about this song, folks, is that it feels so incredibly self-satisfied and pleased with itself. It's hard to explain, but I can't help but detect a sense that Cassidy himself believes that he's done better than Paul here, which ugh, just makes my skin crawl. Nope, didn't like this one at all, everyone. Uh, you know... If you disagree, email in. I'll gladly defend myself here. <laughs> I really will. Following on, and we have another track that I've been absolutely gagging to talk about. Get your platform shoes ready, folks. This is Venus and Mars by Tony Van Doyne, or Dwayne, or Dune. I don't know.
I think Tony is the first artist we've had on any of these episodes that is so obscure she doesn't even have her own Wikipedia page, or at least this episode, which is very sad indeed. But yeah, this comes from her 1978 album, Cosmic Dancer, which is an album of entirely space-themed disco songs, which A, explains why this particular McCartney song was chosen, and B, maybe one of those gimmicky albums we've looked at, but by God, did this shit ever fly off the shelves in 78. Let's get one thing straight here, though, folks. I unequivocally, unashamedly love disco music, and... I would have generally been one of those people at the end of the mid-70s that would have been heartbroken by its mighty decline. So, with that in mind, you shouldn't be surprised to hear that I totally fell for this cover. It is full of shameless bubblegum joy, and I'm genuinely impressed with how they managed to turn a slow acoustic McCartney number so naturally into a pure, straight-up disco dance tune. Now, as we know, McCartney was working on disco tracks around this time, Though this isn't a McCartney disco soft rock hybrid kind of thing. No, no, this is proper in-your-face disco. It's sugary sweet, and there's an innocence and earnestness to it that made it stick the landing and avoid kind of cringeworthy cliches. Like, I know some of you out there will think that, but I think this one just has near-flawless execution. Like, this song isn't a palate cleanser designed to get you to the next part of the album. This is... A proper song. Though the coolest part of the cover is how they basically turn two songs into one. They combine the two short parts of Venus and Mars, the track, or the tracks from the original album, into one longer, more meaningful experience. There aren't many other examples I could think of where you could do something like this, but the decision to do so was incredibly clever, as it gives you two of the best songs from that album back-to-back, lengthens it, and means we don't have to sit through a disco version of Rock Show, which probably would not have worked nearly as well. I was also shocked by how much I loved all the changes they made. Like, they do expand both songs and add so many little flourishes and touches that give the song a bit of substance and weight to it. For what it is, the pace is truly thrilling, and generally wants to make you take to the dance floor. There's a wonderfully squelchy synth production to the whole thing that really reminded me of Cufflink from London Town. And I also want to give a shout out to those opening and closing drum sounds that sound like they are lifted directly from a McCartney cold cut in 76. Um, Her vocal and her delivery in particular is just so fucking heartwarming and you cannot help but feel good as you're listening to it. And the addition of the call and response backing vocals was a particularly cute move. And I always find myself joining in there. Like Edward Hubbard's or Hubbard's Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey from earlier, this is another track that has since joined my own personal McCartney headcanon and I've been listening to it quite a lot actually. The cover is absolute fire and I won't hear any more on the matter. I simply won't. Next up, we come to the second Bert of this episode as we take a look at what Bert Park says with Let Him In. Take it away, Bert. Someone knocking at the door Somebody ringing the bell Someone knocking at the door Somebody ringing the bell do me a favor, 
open the door and let him in. Oh yeah. Sister Susie, Father John, Martin Luther, still in North, Uncle Ernie, Annie Jen, open the door now, let him Somebody ringing the bell, somebody knocking the door, somebody ringing the bell, do me a favor, open the door and let him in, oh yeah. This song came up rather randomly on my Facebook feed a while back, and then I saw it, I knew that one day I would be commenting upon it, because... Fuck me, is this some crazy gotta sing, gotta dance type shit? Another truly glorious time capsule if there ever was one. And it also might be the campiest thing we've ever looked at on the podcast, which is quite the feat considering I'm the host. From what I can gather from the footage, this performance was broadcast during the 1976 Miss America competition. And apparently there is other entertainment in this programme aside from exploiting the scantily clad bodies of women. This entertainment comes in the form of one Burt Parks, who, according to Wikipedia, hosted the show from 1955 to 1979 before being booted off to find a younger audience. I wonder why. Well, it probably has something to do with clips like this. Now, as all entertainers were back in the day, Parks is clearly an all-arounder, and not only does he sing the famous There She Is Miss America song, but for our listening pleasure and viewing pleasure, he does a rendition of Let Em In, and what a rendition it is. The arrangement is this totally wheezy and lifeless replication of the original, which is somewhat forgivable, but what is not forgivable is the singing. I mean, yeah, some people will probably comment on how campy sounds, but I'm not talking about that. Instead, Parks chooses to sing the song in this kind of spoken, strict school headmaster style that is, it's just laughable. The real question, though, was whether he was miming or not, because during one of the close-ups, I think we spot him missing his cue at least once. Again, like the other television entries we've had on today, it's hard not to focus on the video aspect behind this track, and you cannot help but be drawn to the fabulous male dancers behind him during their routine, which is complete with ringing the bell and knocking on the door miming actions. And to top it all off, Parks gives us this truly show-stopping little back-and-forth jig that, for some reason, gets a truly thunderous applause from a clearly easily pleased audience. Simply splendid stuff. My favourite part of the video itself, though, is the description, which reads, This is the only singing performance that I find funnier than William Shatner's Rocket Man or Taxi. Additionally, the top comment is also pretty killer, as it reads, This is what hell must be like. Once again, folks, this performance, I guess I should call it, is clearly part of the 1970s run-and-gun-that'll-do attitude of live song production. 
Uh, there's there's no skill or care or affection going into this whatsoever. And yes, whilst it is just a bit of fun, it's mostly fun for the performers and not the audience. The greatest compliment that I could pay this song is that it's short. And thank God it is, because I would not be able to handle it otherwise. And for our penultimate song, I'm going to do one that's far more for me than for you, the audience. This is Chicken Pot Pie by none other than Weird Al Yankovic. When we were young, Bernie's Daily was down the block. He made a great liver pate. But if there's one thing in this world that I like better than a corned beef on rye, it's chicken pot pie. Now, whilst this is technically a parody song more so than a cover, I will say that this is still one that I was definitely eager to talk about when I was compiling this list. I may not know Al's catalogue that deeply. I've only got a couple of albums that I've gone all the way through, but I'm still a huge fan of his. His greatest hits are some of my favourite comedy songs of all time, and his multi-song polkas are literally one of the most fun things to listen to ever. Now, as McCartney legend goes, McCartney and Al bummed into each other at an airport and Paul said, anytime you want to do one of my songs, it's yours, which is pretty fucking incredible for any parodist to hear. So, two years passed and Weird Al cordially approached Paul McCartney, as he does with any of his parody songs, and politely asked him whether he would be okay with the parody of Live and Let Die. Now, apparently, according to Al himself, the only reason Paul didn't allow him to use the song is because the song promotes the eating of meat, which is against his vegetarian worldview. McCartney supposedly did propose that he would grant consent if it was called tofu pot pie or something similar, but Yankovic refused, citing that tofu pot pie doesn't have the same ring to it and he would go against the chorus. Unfortunately, though, as you heard there, there does not appear to be a full version of this track available. And there's only probably about just over 50 seconds that has leaked. I'm not sure whether this is because McCartney has deleted all traces of it, or Yankovic himself has done it, or because it cannot be uploaded for legal reasons. But Weird Al has still performed this song during live concerts, debuting it in 1992, the year I was born, as part of his Fast Food Medley, a compilation of segments of some of his food-related songs. Though, fortunately, Yankovic and McCartney have never held any ill will to each other over this declination, with McCartney even agreeing to do one of Weird Al's comedy interview skits in 1996, and yes, you can bet your sweet ass that I will be including a clip of that at the end of this episode. Interestingly, as I found out literally today on Wikipedia, under American law, you are not required to actually ask permission 
from an artist to do a parody song. Weird Al was just very polite, I guess. Also, interestingly, this actually wouldn't have been the first Beatle content that Weird Al would have done, because his first polka medley, Polka on 45, actually includes a segment of Hey Jude. And, you know, I wonder if that's what opened up, you know, the dialogue between him and the Macca camp. Who knows? But, yeah, I think the song that you just heard there pretty much speaks for itself. It's Weird Al talking about food, as he always does. He always talks about things being on rye, because that's one of those great rhyming words that seems to fit in well. And <laughs> just the idea that live and let die becomes chicken pot pie is so serendipitous and wonderful and natural, and it it just fits. And yes, I know Weird Al's very much a Marmite kind of guy. You either love him or you hate him, but this really is my shtick. I think he does it extremely well. I think the chicken clucking bit is inspired. <laughs> it, it just gives the song such a, a runaway, silly energy to it. No, I'm not going to say this is better than Live and Let Die by Guns N' Roses, but hey, it still makes me smile, and that's all I ever want from Weird Al. And for our final song, folks, we are going to take a look at a track that I've only relatively recently come to appreciate. This is Junior's Farm by... The Lee Harvey Oswald Band. say i cannot think of a much greater punk band name than this i mean the lee harvey oswald band bravo gentlemen the cover itself comes from their 1994 debut album a taste of prison and how cool is it to be able to cover maca so early in one's career similarly to john denver and junk earlier on in this episode a hard rock punk version of Junior's Farm is just something that makes total sense to me. I mean, of course something like this exists, and <laughs> good for them for doing it because it fucking rocks. Like Guns N' Roses' version of Live and Let Die, which I literally just referenced a second ago, this is another one of those covers where you know that Paul would be so happy to hear his work done so well. Like, Paul does go pretty hard comparatively on the original recording, but these young'uns are just able to take it much further, and it's just so satisfying how heavy they were able to make it. There's a palpable energy to this cover that removes that latent layer of, oh, I've heard this before, and it keeps things fresh and fun. Once again, the pace has been quickened significantly, almost like the group took a cue from Paul himself in terms of a good starting point at reinterpreting one of his own songs. 
the drums are colossal, they, they, they just get smashed, it's like a, a thunderous sound that just adds so much to the relentless momentum of the song, and you know, being a powerhouse rock tune, or punk rock tune, the guitars are just immense, and I love the tone they bring as well. It really makes a classic song sound so naturally modern, and the raucous way they just thrash their way through it at such speeds is so thrilling and gratifying. One of my favourite parts of this cover as well are the vocals. The distortion, that kind of like microphone distortion, is very of the time, but it's not dated, it's, it, it, it's just cool, and it's an effect that I've always been endeared to. And since this is a song that's kind of in the Macca nonsense called Wheelhouse, it doesn't quite matter that you can't exactly make out what they're singing. And then, rather faithfully, you get these male-female harmony vocals that were also just a joy to listen to. Also, I can't talk about this song without mentioning Dan Ely, who I had on an episode of Macca in your attic a few months ago, where he basically told me the entire Junior's Farm story and his encounter with Wings in 74. He showed me the bass that Paul practiced on you know, practice this song on, and Dan himself also gave a huge shout out to a recent cover of Junior's Farm by Jonathan Pushkar, which we featured on the episode several months ago also. Yeah, folks, not too much to say about this one. It's a hard punk rock version of Junior's Farm, done really, 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 really well. All the changes make sense. It's been updated and modernised perfectly. There's no cynicism here. The band clearly love this music. And rather than changing specific elements, it's just putting it into a new genre, which allows you to appreciate the song in ways you never even knew you could. And yeah, I'm just glad that we could end this episode on such a high note. And there we are, folks. That is another episode of Poor or Nothing Done and Dusted. This has been our, I think it's third or fourth <laughs> it's you know, another covers episode we've been looking at covers of Paul McCartney's music from across the years and I've had a lot of fun I think we've had a wide gamut of genres and quality uh, to say the least I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have if you've got anything to say about any of the songs here or you've got any future covers to recommend drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter which is at McCartneyPod I'm sure Denny Lane is already playing us out by now so all I'll say everyone is keep listening to Paul keep listening to Paul McCartney covers you know and tune in next week when we are going to be looking at Blackbird singing Paul McCartney's book of poetry yeah we're going to get very academic on the next one folks peace and love peace and love Harry Harry Krishna no more autographs
Paul McCartney. Man, what a thrill this is. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Welcome. Our sure in Bigara, the top of the morning. You can just say hello. Hello. Paul, you're acting stupid. Oh, I'm really sorry I do that sometimes. Now, what did I say? You start acting silly, and you don't get your cookie at the end of the show. Okay, then. Just be good. Okay, you know, you go and you tell me what to do. I don't know what's going on. All right, cheer up. So, how's it going, Paul? Everything's vibrating, dude. That's nice. Before we get started, are you comfortable? Can I get you anything? Water. Okay. There you go. A nice cup of water for Mr. McCartney. Wait a minute. Am I paying for it? Uh, no, Paul. The first one's free. There you go. Drink up. There. Now, can I get you anything else? Beef. What? I thought you and Linda were strict vegetarians. Okay, okay. Beef coming up. Ugh. There. Now, are we finally going to do this interview? We're going to do it. Joe. It's Al, remember? Not Joe. Anyway, just so I have it straight, you were, uh, you were known as the Stinky Beetle, right? What? Or was it the Cute Beetle? I forget one of those. Anyway, um, what kind of music are you listening to these days? Do you like jazz or maybe classical? I don't like jazz. I don't like classical. I see. So what kind of music are you listening to? Uh-huh, John Tesh. What else? Sex Pistols, mm-hmm. Uh, then what? So you have very eclectic tastes. That's good. Uh, speaking of music, I was just wondering, have you heard my new album yet? That is probably the worst album, the album I hate most. Oh. Well, what do you think of my underarm deodorant? Hey! Yeah, I knew you'd like it. So, Paul, I guess this is a pretty big moment for you, being on TV with me. Do you realize that at this very moment, there are literally dozens of people watching you? Oh, my God. That's right. So now, as a public service, I'd like to show everybody an extreme close-up of your lips. Wow! Check out those lips! Look at those lips! That's Paul's lips! <laughs> hey, did you know that the camera guy here is ticklish? Watch this. <laughs> wow, isn't this fun? No. All right, time for you to entertain me. I want you to sing some bip-bop music. Boy, no, no, no. Oh, come on, we want bip-bop music. Give us some bip-bop music. Bip-bop, bip-bop, real. Oh, that was just great, thanks. Oh, by the way, isn't that the shirt I got you for Christmas? Oh, it looks good on you. And, you know, I'm still wearing that steel wool underwear you got me. Oh. Anyway, let's talk about the old days. Now, I hear you used to be quite popular with the females. Not just humans, either. Uh, let's change the subject. Um, couple of quick questions. How much do you have in your wallet right now? You know, a billion. Wow. Impressive. Hey, can I borrow five bucks? No, man. Okay. Um, how do you feel about sticking pencils up your nose? I love that. I <laughs> knew you would. You know, I've had this piece of broccoli stuck in my teeth for the last week. You think I should floss with a dull razor blade? You've got to do it, man. It's, it's the best way. 
Well, I'll take your word for it. Say, do you think your head will explode if you listen to too much Millie Vanilli? I think it will. So, Paul, being a famous bass player and all, you must have an incredibly well-developed thumb. Will you show us your thumb? Oh, okay. <laughs> Would you do anything I asked you to? Yeah. Would you paint my house? Why not? Would you shave my back with your teeth? I actually don't have that much a problem with that. Cool. Well, thanks for being on the show, Paul. You did a terrific job. Oh, did I? Yeah, you were great. And let me just tell you confidentially, you were always my favorite member of Wings. Say, I'm getting some people together to go bowling after the show. You want to come along? That is, like, just so romantic. No, it's just bowling, Paul. You want to come or not? It just would be great. It's been my dream. Well, all right, you're there. Any final words for our viewing audience? Yes, I couldn't agree more.